0: Welcome to the National Community Church Podcast. We're thrilled to be able to share this weekend message with you from Pastor Mark Patterson, our lead pastor at NCC. If you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes or go to theaterchurch.com. In 1961, a meteorologist named Edward Lorenz designed a computer program to simulate and forecast weather patterns. One day, Lorenz was in a hurry to make a meeting. So instead of entering .506127, he rounded down to the nearest thousand, .506. Lorenz figured that one one-thousandth of one percent would be inconsequential. When he returned to the lab later in the day and rebooted his computer, he discovered a radical difference in weather conditions. Now, in 1963, he published a paper outlining the fact that Very small changes in initial conditions can produce very large effects in eventual outcomes. A fellow meteorologist noted that if Lorentz's theory was correct, uh, that, quote, one flap of a seagull's wings would be enough to alter the course of the weather forever. Over the years, that metaphor evolved. Uh, Butterflies are more beautiful than seagulls. And so in 1972, at a gathering of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, Edward Lorenz delivered a talk titled, Does the flap of a butterfly's wing in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? Well, his theory grew wings, pun intended, and became known as the butterfly effect. Simply put, small changes in input can produce big differences in output. It's true in science, and it's true in life. You're one decision away from a totally different life. One risk, one change, one idea. Now, it might be a difficult decision. It might be a crazy idea. It might be a quantum risk, but... One change, as small as one one thousandth of one percent, extrapolated across time and space, extrapolated by God's grace, can change the trajectory of eternity. And that's what this series is about. You don't have to make a hundred changes. In fact, good luck with that. What you do need to do is be a hundred percent committed to one one thousandth percent Change. And if you are, it's game on. It's the mundanity of excellence that we talked about last week. Well, Happy New Year. Uh, Welcome to National Community Church. This weekend, we begin a new series titled Reboot. Now, it traces its etymological origins all the way back to a little phrase coined in 1852 by John Carter. Pulling oneself up by one's bootstraps. To reboot is to get back up after getting knocked down. You could say it's fighting one more round. In the 1970s, that word took on new meaning with the advent of personal computers. To reboot is to shut your computer down for the purpose of restarting the operating system, to reboot, is to restart. And that's what we're going to talk about over the next several weeks. Now, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 51, and that's where we're going to end up. But uh, I, I believe that spirituality is practicality. Jesus said wisdom is proved right by her children. In other words, the proof is in the pudding. And so I thought it might be interesting for me to share just a few ways that I reboot. Uh, Here's an example, and this seems like a uh, a silly place to start, but uh, here we go. One of the ways that I reboot is with a nap, Luke 8.23 says the disciples were sailing across the Sea of Galilee, and it says that Jesus settled down for a nap. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Uh, Did you know that a study done by NASA found that astronauts who took a 26-minute nap increased productivity by 34%? You've heard me say this before. If I was running for political office, one of my planks would be a national nap time. I think we would be happier. We would be healthier. I think we would be nicer. Now, I know that not everybody can pull off a nap during their lunch hour. Um, This might be a weekend thing. But when I'm in a writing season, I get up very early in the morning. And I'll tell you why. Because 90% of my creativity happens before noon. And at some point circadian rhythm dips and I lose focus and you do not want to read a book that I wrote in the afternoon. But what I've discovered is that if I take a nap and sometimes it's five or ten minutes, that's all I need. That nap reboots my brain. And so I think one trick to life, and and it's true whether it's rebooting your brain, rebooting your body, rebooting your spirit, you've got to find ways to restart the operating system. Now, it could be 20 push-ups. It could be a stretching routine. It could be a walk around the block. But uh, I've found that if a nap doesn't work, exercise usually does Isn't it intriguing that the way you gain energy is by expending energy and exercising? Let me talk a little bit about rebooting uh, the body. One of my heroes is Teddy Roosevelt, in part because uh, he suffered from severe asthma like I did for 40 years. Of course, he didn't have an inhaler. And so uh, his dad would uh, hold him in his arms and walk around their Manhattan ha- uh, home in the wee hours of the morning uh, when Teddy couldn't breathe. Or he'd take him out for a carriage ride through the streets of New York City. And at some point when Teddy got old enough, his dad said, uh, Teddy, uh, you have the mind, but you don't have the body. And without the body, your mind can only take you so far. He said, you're going to have to remake your body. And so they built a gym in the second floor of their Manhattan home. And Teddy Roosevelt began to remake his body day after day with tremendous discipline. And uh, became quite the physical specimen. In fact, I just happened to see... uh, A friend who's a part of this church who's a Secret Service agent who probably could be grateful that he didn't work for Teddy Roosevelt because Roosevelt drove Secret Service agents crazy with his point-to-point hikes. Um, He would go skinny dipping in the Potomac River, just saying, and uh, set up a boxing ring in the White House. Went blind in his left eye, just didn't bother to tell anybody until years later. But it, it was... Roosevelt remaking his body, rebooting his body. Now, that doesn't happen by default, happens by design. The way you reboot, are you ready? Is reestablishing the right routines. This is not complicated. It's about restarting those operating systems by reestablishing the right routines. So in, 2000, uh, in 2018, um, Uh, Well, 2017, ran a marathon. 2018, going to bike a century with Josiah. Um, And so I'll put in thousands of miles on a stationary bike, and uh, I'll hit the gym like I normally do. But I felt like I needed to do something to kind of reboot my body just a little bit. And so uh, here's what I'm going to do. And you know, this is a great thing about um, being the guy up here preaching, because when I say stuff then I actually feel like I have to do it. Um, and so when I announced last year I'm going to run a marathon, there were a few moments where I was thinking about maybe I shouldn't, but uh, I told you I would, and so I did. Um, so here's one of the ways that uh, I'm rebooting my, my body. I decided 2018 that uh, I'm going to do push-ups and planks every day. So I started January 1st, 23 push-ups, because that was Michael Jordan's number, and that's about all I could do. Um, and, uh, and then planks, um, uh, of course, to work on the core a little bit. But here's what I'm doing. I'm setting stretch goals. I want to add a push-up a day and see many, how many I can do by the end of the year. Now, I, I don't think it's going to be 365, but I bet it's going to be more than 23. 23. And then the planks, what I'm doing is I add time to the plank because I want to see how long I can plank by the end of the year. So stay tuned. Now, why am I even talking about this? I'll tell you why. Because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6.19, the Bible has an incredibly high view of the body. And I remember trying to explain to my son Parker when he was real little um, about this idea that, uh, Parker, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So I I tried to explain that concept, and, and I'll never forget what came out of my son's mouth. He said, so my skin is like marble? Yeah, it takes a second to figure that one out, but pretty, pretty cool, right? In a sense, if your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, uh, your skin is the outside marble. Uh, you've got to take care of the temple. The way you do that is diet and exercise. And now here's the good news. Physical disciplines and spiritual disciplines, in my experience, are not unrelated. Developing spiritual disciplines helps me develop physical disciplines and vice and so here's the question. What daily disciplines do you need to put into place to get where you need to go by the end of the year? What do you need to reboot in 2018? Now here's the key. Whatever it is that you need to do, it better be specific. Generic reboots do not work. I want to lose weight. I want to read more. I want to complain less. Good for you. It's not going to work because there's no way to tell whether or not you were really successful. You've got to define the win. You've got to make it measurable. I want to lose 10 pounds in two months. Okay, now we're talking. I want to read a book a month. I bet you will. Why? Because now it's measurable. Now it's specific. I think that's an expression of faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Let me share one more way that uh, I reboot my brain. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, a mind stretched by a new idea never returns to its original shape. And so I reboot my brain with books. Now, part of it is that's the way I'm wired. My StrengthsFinder learner uh, is right at the top. And so uh, I love to learn. But more specifically, I love reading disciplines that I know very little about. And part of this is because I believe that all truth is God's truth. And part of it is that when I learn new things, it makes my synapses fire in different ways that I begin to connect things. And it cultivates creativity. So one of my favorite books this last year was titled uh, The Hidden Life of Trees. Anybody read that one? Um, in 2009, a tree researcher named Dr. Martin Gossner sprayed the oldest tree in the Bavarian Forest National Park with a chemical, an insecticide, a pyrethrum. Uh, all of the organisms that were living on the bark of that tree died, fell to the earth, and Dr. Gossner collected them, and he counted, are you ready for this? 2,000. 41 different kinds of insects belonging to 257 different species. That blew my mind. Trees are these incredibly complex ecosystems. Now, I did not major in dendrology in college. And before reading that book, a tree was a tree was a tree but guess what? I can't walk through the woods the same way anymore. Why? Because that book rebooted my brain. Listen, 15 years ago, I read a book titled Mozart's Brain and the fighter pilot, the author Richard Riestack said something so simple yet so profound. He said, learn more, see more. Learn more, see more. He said, the richer my knowledge of flora and fauna of the woods, the more I'll be able to see. Our perceptions take on richness and depth as a result of all the things that we learn. What the eye sees is determined what the brain has learned. Listen, the more you know, the more you know how much you don't know. But the more you know, the more you appreciate. Let me switch gears a little bit. I think the key to spiritual growth is routine. We call them spiritual disciplines. But once a routine becomes routine, you have to change the routine. It's the law of requisite variety. You have to reboot. If you go to the gym, exercise the same way every time, you know that eventually uh, your body will adapt and those exercises will lose effectiveness. And so what you need to do is you need to change the sequence. You need to change the exercise. How? By confusing your muscles, And I think the same thing is true spiritually. Now, you've heard me say this before. I'm going to say it again. Jesus did not do an orientation with his disciples. He did a disorientation. They were confused most of the time. And that was by intent. That's how we learn. That's how we Grow, how many times did Jesus say, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. What was he doing? He was rebooting their Old Testament brains. It was no longer an eye for an eye. It was love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. It was the first shall be last and the greatest among you is a servant of all. This was mind blowing. He was rebooting their brains since we're on the subject, uh, every year, I tried to choose a new translation of the Bible. Now here's why I do it. In part because my most prized possession is a Bible that belonged to my grandfather. And I love seeing the verses that he underlined and uh, the notes he wrote in the margin. And so my goal is to mark up enough Bibles that I can give them to my kids and grandkids and maybe even have a few more left over. But the Other reason I do it is this. When I read the same version over and over and over again, I can fill in the blank. And so what happens is I go on autopilot. And so what I need to do is change the translation. So two years ago, it was the King James. Uh, Last year, it was the NIV. This year, I'm going to do the New Living Translation. Why? Because the little change in language, it's a law of requisite variety. Again, it makes my synapses fire differently. And it makes me engage the word of God with a little bit more intentionality. And so can I challenge you uh, at the beginning of the year, at the beginning of a series called Reboot, to one, perhaps uh, choose a new translation of the Bible. And then what I want you to do is I want you to download an app called YouVersion. And then I want you to go on that app and I want you to look at the little tab that says plans. And then under plans, I want you to pick one. And it could be the entire Bible, um, if you're pretty bold, if you think you can get through the whole thing, and I think you can. Uh, Or maybe New Testament, Psalms, Proverbs. Pick a plan and then work the plan. And here's what's going to happen. If you uh, work the plan day in and day out, that one decision, that daily discipline is going to be a butterfly effect in 2018. All right, I think I told you to turn to Psalm 51. I bet you're there. Uh, Here we go. Um, We'll look at verse one in just a moment. Here's the backstory. David has just made one of the biggest mistakes of his life. Uh, He has an affair with a woman named Bathsheba. And then he makes a second mistake to try to cover up the first mistake. And he has Bathsheba's husband killed. Here's the part of the story, though, that Bathsheba's husband is not a stranger to David. Uh, In 2 Samuel 23, there's a list of David's mighty men. 37 wrote a book on it called Chase the Line. And the very last name listed is Bathsheba's husband. It's Uriah the Hittite. What I'm saying is David betrayed one of his best friends. David betrayed one of his closest confidants. Now, fortunately, there was a prophet who was bold enough and loving enough to rebuke the king of Israel. And a king who was wise enough to repent. And so David is racked with guilt. And then they lose their child. David and Bathsheba lose that child. And so he's writhing with, with grief. And so you've got guilt, you've got grief. And when you've got guilt and you've got grief, this is a pretty good prayer to pray. Have mercy on me, oh God. I don't even know if we're going to get past verse 1, but let's see. If you're taking notes, I want you to jot this down. Here's a definition. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us. Your sin debt was paid in full at Calvary's cross. You remember Jesus said it is finished. It was an accounting term that referred to the last payment of a debt. Your sin debt was paid in full. Mercy is sin forgiven, sin forgotten. It is the finished work of Christ. It's a clean slate, it's a fresh start. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. One of my favorite promises is Lamentations 3:23. His mercies are new every morning. Let me back up the truck just a little bit because uh, Jeremiah before he declares this promise, points his finger at God. I want you to hear what he has to say. God has turned his hand against me. God has broken my bones. God has buried me in a dark place. God has walled me in. God has shut out my prayers. God has drawn his bow and made me a target for his arrows. Listen, there's a God in heaven who can handle your honest thoughts and your honest feelings. And he wants nothing less than that. It's okay to not be okay. Jeremiah is not okay. He points the finger at God. And then here is his self-assessment. He says, peace has been stripped away. Everything I had hoped for is lost. My suffering is bitter beyond words and I will never forget this awful time. So I, I don't think you can appreciate his mercies are new every morning if you don't understand everything that leads up, it is darkest before dawn. You cannot have a comeback without a setback. And there are moments in life where it seems like God is a day late and a dollar short. And what I've learned is that that's the moment when God shows up with his grace and his mercy. And I love what Jeremiah declares after pointing the finger at God. And after assessing his situation, here's what he declares. Yet I will dare to hope when I remember this, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Imagine an old European, uh, an old European city with narrow streets and cobbled uh, stones. I think of Edinburgh, Scotland, since I've been there. Imagine that street lined with little storefronts. And there's one store with an old weathered sign hanging outside. And it says, Mercy Shop. And you notice in the window a sign that says, Open, on both sides. You walk up to the door and there's no lock because it's never closed. As you walk in, you notice that there's no cash register because mercy is free. The owner says, what do you want? And your answer is mercy. And he smiles. And he takes your measurements. And he goes them back. And he reappears almost as quickly as he disappeared. And he said, I have good news. Uh, Because mercy is never out of stock. And you try it on and it fits like a glove. And you get up and you get ready to leave. And as you go to the door, the owner says with a smile, thanks for coming. And then with a wink, I'll see you tomorrow. His mercies are new. Every morning. The English word new is the Hebrew word hadas. It doesn't just mean again and again, as amazing as that would be. It means new as in different, it means new as in never experienced before. Today's mercy is different than yesterday's mercy or the day before or the day be, or the day before that let me put it this way just as the seasonal flu vaccine changes from year to year because of a different strain god's mercy changes from day to day because of a different strain of sin do me a favor pull out your smartphone Android, iPhone. Uh, you probably have a computer, uh, a calculator app uh, on your phone. I want you to pull it out. Now, I want you to take your age and I want you to multiply it by 365. Now, not everybody has their phone. Maybe you're doing this in your head. You must be good at math. All right. Uh, take your age, multiply it by 365. Now, I want you to Hold on to that number if you can. And if possible, I I want you to count the number of days from your last birthday until today. My birthday is November 5th, so it's been 63 days. And so I add that to the number of years times 365. That's how many different strains of mercy God has given you. To just say, thank you, God, for your mercy in a very generic fashion is to underestimate the potency of God's mercy, which is new and different every single day. If you're 25, that's 9,125 strains of mercy. If you're 50, it's 18,200. If you're 65, 23,725 strains of mercy. The older you get, the more grateful you should be. If you want to reboot spiritually, this is where it starts. It starts with Jeremiah's promise, and it starts with David's prayer. Have mercy on me, O God. Now, here's the amazing thing. Mercy is only half the equation. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, but there is this thing called grace and it's the opposite side of the coin. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. In other words, it's the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. David says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Verse 10, verse 11 cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Verse 12, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. David is saying, God, reboot my heart, reboot my mind, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Come on, be honest with me. Scale of one to 10, what is your level of joy this weekend? Because that is a critical gauge of how we understand God's mercy. Let me tell you how I think you can go from 3 to 5 or 7 to 8 or maybe 9 to 10. Joy is not getting what we want. Joy is appreciating what we have. It's about focus. We have a saying around here, don't let what's wrong with you. Keep you from worshiping what's right about God. I love what David's doing here. He's refocusing on the mercy of God, refocusing on the love of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God. That's how we reboot spiritually, by reminding ourselves of who God is. I wish I had more time to talk about it, but let me say this. If you want to reboot joy in your life, start keeping a gratitude journal. Uh, I've done it for years. Now, last year, a little below average, 215 gratitudes. Could have done better than that. Um, the reason why I number them is twofold. Sang a song in Sunday school, count your blessings, name them one by one. It stuck with me. And then read a wonderful book by Ann Voskamp, A Thousand Gifts. I think numbering our gratitudes is a great way of rebooting our attitude and rebooting our focus. Let me close with this. Reboot isn't just a computing term. Narratology is the study of narrative structure. In that context, a reboot is restarting a storyline. But here's the key. It's discarding all previous continuity. Stick with me. The Bible calls Jesus the author and perfecter, of our faith, Listen, there's got to come a moment in your life where you allow God to begin writing his story through you. And what that means is this. Uh, his mercy enters the equation. And guess what? Now the past is in the past. And now we can begin to move into the future with faith. And there's a God who wants to reboot your story. Now he often does it by renaming people, right? He calls Abram, Abraham, and says, you'll be the father of many nations. He calls Simon, Peter, and says, on this rock, I will build my church. He calls Saul, a terrorist. Uh, Paul, who's going to write half a New Testament and go on three missionary journeys that's going to spread the good news of the gospel across continents. And so God rewrites their story. He reboots, and he wants to do the same thing in each one of our lives. This weekend, our family is going to see amazing grace at the Museum of the Bible. It's a story of John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader. John Newton wondered if God could ever forgive the enormity of his sin. He called himself the old African blasphemer. Then one day, he discovered the grace of God, and the grace of God rebooted his story. In fact, he wrote a little song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. T'was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. A century before, there was another John, John Bunyan. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress, might be the second best-selling book behind the Bible, but it's his autobiography that I find interesting. John Bunyan titled it, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. In that book, John Bunyan divides his life into three stages, all of them symbolized By a pair of scales. In the first stage. Not unlike John Newton. He wondered if God could ever forgive his sin. The scales of justice tipped. Toward fear. And toward despair. Then one day. He discovered 2 Corinthians 12.9. My grace is sufficient. And he said that's the day that the scales went even and it changed his life. But there was a third stage. What Bunyan discovered is that he had missed the last two words. That verse is not four words. My grace is sufficient, as great as that would be. No, it's six words. My grace is sufficient for you and you and you and you and you and you and you. And And it's different for each one of us. And it's different every single day. John Bunyan said, Every word was a mighty word to me. My grace is sufficient for you. Four words aren't enough. Hebrews 4:16 says, "Approach the throne of grace, With confidence, I thought I was going to make it through this message, but I have been praying for you this week. Because you need God's mercy. And you need God's grace as much as I do. And I pray that those last two words would grip your heart today. The mercy shop is open, there is grace with your name on it. My grace. Is sufficient for you. Let's pray. Some of you are here today. You've never experienced God's grace getting what you don't deserve. You've never experienced God's mercy not getting what you do deserve. And I want you to experience that kind of mercy, that kind of grace. And the good news is, it's free. And it's available to you. But you have to believe it to receive it. Maybe today, you need to walk into that mercy shop. And simply ask for it. God. Have mercy on me. Amen.